Good morning. It's a privilege to worship with you this morning. Appreciate the songs and scripture reading that have been part of the service today. Uh, my wife Sue and I just recently moved uh, just before Christmas to Harford County, about a half hour or so northwest from here. And we have visited a number of times uh, when we've come to visit Charlie and Lori, Laura and uh, enjoyed our visits with your church family. There was a man who showed up to watch a little league game, and he walked over to the dugout, and he spoke to a young child in the dugout, and he said, well, how's, how's your team doing? And the boy responded, well, we're behind 18 to nothing. And so the man said, I, I bet you're really discouraged, 18 to nothing. And the boy said, no, I'm not discouraged at all. We haven't even been up to bat yet. <laughs> well, this morning, we're going to look at the opening verses of 1 Peter. And if you want to turn in your Bibles there, we'll be looking, and I guess it will also be on the screen. But Peter was writing to some very discouraged people. People that were suffering under intense persecution. In fact, beyond our scripture reading this morning in the text that we're going to be speaking on, we see where Peter writes in verse 8, In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. This theme of suffering and trials comes up several times in the book of 1 Peter, particularly in chapter 4. We see that theme. People who, as we'll notice in the opening verses of this chapter, were scattered because of persecution, had to leave their homeland and settle in what was largely part of what we call modern Turkey or Asia Minor. They were struggling. I think sometimes we as Americans don't realize the bubble that we have been in in worldwide Christianity over the ages. We're Christians in so many lands today and throughout past centuries have genuinely been persecuted, suffered, died for their faith. We really haven't seen that in our lifetime. Um, the winds of change are coming across our land and becoming more anti-God, anti-Christian. And maybe before we go to be with the Lord, we will see more of that in our life. Well, let's notice in this text... 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 1, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, Bithynia. Those were provinces in Asia Minor, again, what we would call modern Turkey. This is the group of people he's speaking to, leaving their homeland, their exiles, Verse 2, according to the foreknowledge of God, the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ 
and for sprinkling with his blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. To an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Shall we pray? Lord, this is your inspired word. Truths that can lift our spirit, can guide our thoughts today and throughout the week. And we have, within the hearing of this word, people with multiple different problems and situations and trials and struggles and, and suffering. And may this opening passage in Peter's letter to those who are exiles inspire and encourage us thousands of years later. Timeless truths to guide our living and our hearts and our thoughts this very day. In Jesus' name, amen. So following Peter's introduction in verses 1 and 2, he begins a paragraph with a doxology of praise to God the Father. In verse 3, he says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. This is a salutation and almost word for word what we find in the opening of 2 Corinthians as well as in Ephesians. In fact, in Ephesians 1.3, we see, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in heavenly places. So whether it's Paul or Peter, this seems to be a, an introduction, a, a salutation that often occurred as they're writing letters to the various folks that they're speaking to. That first word in verse 3, blessed, can also be translated praise. In fact, the NIV translates the opening of this verse with the word praise. So we are blessed, and we ought to be blessing God and praising God. This word means to really speak well of God. In the New Testament, this word that is translated blessed or praise is always used in the sense that our praise, our blessing, ought to be directed to our Heavenly Father, to God Almighty. And that's difficult at times for we humans because it's hard at times to give praise. We want to be recipients of praise, and we need to deflect that and give that to God our Father. The focus in verse 3 is on God the Father. Why is that? Well, really, He is the author of our inheritance through His Son, Jesus Christ. As 1 John chapter 4, verse 14 says, The Father sent the Son to be the Savior of the world. They are indeed co-equal in essence, the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. But then what about this phrase, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ? This can trip some folks up in their theology, in their thinking, the Father of the Lord Jesus Christ. The Bible makes it abundantly clear that 
Jesus Christ is our eternal God, the Father, Son, and Spirit. And I know the Trinity is sometimes hard to wrap our minds around, our brains around, but I think of a passage such as Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6, familiar verse that we think of at the Christmas season. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Or I also think of John's writings in John 1, 1, speaking of Jesus Christ, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and then later on in verse 14, we clearly see the identification who the Word is, the Word was made flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory, the glory is of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Clearly, Scripture lets us know that the Son, Jesus Christ, has always existed. He is the eternal God. And Scripture also makes it very clear that the Father and Son are one. Jesus himself made that statement when he said, I and the Father are one in John chapter 10, verse 30. What really distinguishes the Son from the Father is not only the quality of his being, but because he is just as divine as the Father. But really, what distinguishes them in this passage and other passages like this is the functioning of their relationships and their roles that they play. Jesus came into this world to do the will of his Father. And twice in John's Gospel, we read this phrase that Jesus came to do the will of the Father in John 4. 34 and John 6:38. So after this introduction in verse 3 of the doxology of praise, Peter lists three reasons why we can and ought to give praise to the Lord. We notice in the middle of verse 3 this phrase, according to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. From the dead. So the first of these three praiseworthy statements that we see in the end of verse 3 is the fact that God acts in mercy. That phrase, according to his great mercy. And I noticed several times in the Psalms this morning we saw that word mercy. Oh, the mercy of God. How we ought to rejoice and our hearts be flooded that We've received his mercy. For God's mercy truly is amazing because all humanity deserves the full wrath of God because of our sin. God is rich in grace and mercy and gives life to the rebellious, which includes all of us in rebellion against God in saving us and providing his compassion and his love and grace. This word mercy means pity, or it has the idea of having compassion towards the miserable, showing compassion, pity. And as I reflect in my own heart, I think, how often do you, Glenn, show mercy towards others? In pity, 
Our God of great mercy wants us also to practice mercy with others. Jonathan Edwards said this, God is pleased to show mercy to his enemies according to his own sovereign pleasure. Though he is infinitely above all and stands in no need of creatures, yet God is graciously pleased to take a merciful notice of poor worms in the dust. And that's you and I. We are worms in the dust that God has shown his mercy. We love these terms and use them a lot. God's grace, God's mercy. We know the grace of God is his unmerited favor toward us. And each word has a little different shade of meaning and when grace applies to our guilt that God shows his unmerited favor to us and then mercy is this tender term that applies to God showing kindness to those who are in misery and his pity upon us. God gives us grace by forgiving us of our sin and gives us mercy by relieving us of the consequences of our sin. The blind beggar Bartimaeus said, Son of David, have mercy on me. The tax collector said, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. All who have come to Jesus Christ have cried out in our hearts for his mercy. Jesus said, one of the Beatitudes, blessed are the poor in spirit. And it's important to finish that phrase, poor in spirit. That we all had to come the same way pleading for God's grace and mercy in our lives because we were in spiritual poverty. So blessed are the poor in spirit. The second reason to praise the Lord in verse 3 is that God brings the new birth to the unregenerate. We see this phrase, he has caused us to be born again. What a blessed truth to know that Christians have been born again. We are saved. We've been regenerated, that, that it is a miracle of God's grace that we who were spiritually dead have been made alive. Now, sometimes I think, and I've been a, a Christian for now many decades, and we can just grow accustomed to our Christianity and, and sometimes take it for granted. And that, that's sad when I reflect on my own soul in doing that. And sometimes we can become glib about our Christianity or thankless. Think about a cancer patient who's struggling through their treatments and then suddenly hears the word after the, the last test, you are now cancer-free. What joy, what exuberation, what relief. We had the spiritual disease of sin, and when we were born again, we were free from that sin, and that joy and exuberance ought to take place every day, even in our most difficult days of suffering or trials, whatever it might be. Verse 3 goes on to say, or makes this statement, He caused us to be born again. 
Thomas Schreiner in his commentary emphasizes that this focuses on God's initiative in producing new life. No one can take credit for being physically born, he cites, and no one can take credit for being spiritually born. Later on in verse 21 of this chapter, Peter makes it clear that this new birth comes through the Word of God, that we must understand gospel truths based on the Word of God as Romans chapter 10, verse 17 reminds us, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of God. Or James chapter 1, verse 18 says, of his own will he brought us forth by the Word of truth, that we should be a kind of firstfruits of his creatures, that it is through the Word of God. And this ought to be a reminder that as we share our faith, we need to share as much of the Word of God because it is the Word of God that will be effective in one's heart to bring salvation as God the Spirit convicts them and draws them to Him. There's a third reason in verse 3 why we ought to give praise to the Lord, and that is that God gives believers a living hope. We notice the conclusion of verse 3 when it says, we have a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. That idea of hope, such a key word. Hope is an expectation of what is sure, what is certain. It is a conviction that something will happen to us in the future. It is a sure expectation. And the verse says it's a living hope, not a dead hope. Not a desperate hope, holding on to a faded dream that's passing away. Now, we just moved from Michigan. And for 50 years, I have tried to be a Detroit Lions fan. And fellow Lions fans have said, well, we hope someday they will make it to the Super Bowl. They're one of four teams that have never been in the Super Bowl. They're the oldest NFL team and one of the oldest NFL teams and have not made it to the Super Bowl. I've lost hope that that's ever going to happen. Now, I know you're sad about the Ravens, and perhaps some of you are that they're not advancing into the playoffs, but you were in the Super Bowl a few years ago, and uh, it's just a dead hope, but not our hope in the Lord. And it has to be, that had to be a huge help. Those who were getting these words from Peter, again, they're scattered throughout Asia Minor. They left their homeland, their exiles, that they had indeed a living hope. In Romans chapter 8, verse 18, the Apostle Paul says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth compared comparing with the glory that is to be revealed in us. What's the basis of this hope? Well, we notice in verse 3 that reminds us this, hope is grounded on none other than the resurrection of Jesus Christ. He triumphed over death. Death lost its sting. And because Christ rose again, we will rise again. We will have a glorified body. We will be with Jesus forevermore. And this is a promise that we receive by faith. 
that death has lost its sting, and we have a living hope, a grand hope. The rest of the sentence explains then two ways that we can have that kind of hope. Notice this as the sentence continues in verses 4 and 5. To an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. So again, this third reason to praise the Lord is that God gives believers a living hope and we see two ways in verses 4 and 5 that we can have a living hope. We see, first of all, that our hope is in an, in an inheritance. The New Testament uses this word inheritance that means something that is fully realized, a possessed gift that we have. It is a living hope that we are secure in. Now, there are people that have their hope in earthly inheritances, and they can come and go, depending on the stock market or, or somebody's financial portfolio. But this is an inheritance that is secure. And there's three adjectives that are used in verse 4 about this inheritance, saying it is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. Imperishable. This imperishable inheritance is speaking about something that won't decay, will not wear out with the passing of time. And everything in our lives is under decay or it is fading, whether it's our clothing or our cars or any machinery that we use, and including our, our bodies as they wear out. This inheritance is imperishable. It also is undefiled which means unstained by sin, unpolluted by sin because of God's imputed grace in our life and God imputing his merit in our life, not our own righteousness, but his righteousness. We can be seen as undefiled because of the precious blood of Jesus Christ. Even though we are still sinners and we still sin every day, as First John reminds us that we need to confess our sins. And he is faithful and just to forgive us and cleanse us of all our unrighteousness. But then we see this word unfading. It is an unfading inheritance. Three key words just get this point across about this inheritance. It is permanent. Another word that can be used for this, it is a perennial, which means lasting or existing for a long time or an infinite time. I do like to garden, and my wife and I like to garden, and, and for years I kept getting confused. Now, is a perennial something that keeps coming up every spring, or the annuals? Because in my mind, an annual comes up annually. No, it dies, and it doesn't come back the next year. But the perennial, surprisingly, after a long winter, will come back and sprout through the soil. And so we see that plant and eventually that flower. We have an unfading, a perennial inheritance. The end of verse 4 then says, it is kept in heaven for you. This word kept is what's called a perfect passive participle, which means it is a completed past activity by God with results that are continuing to today and forevermore. We recognize this inheritance 
that can't be lost will not fade away or be defiled or perish. But then we also notice that our hope is guarded by God's power. Our hope is in our inheritance, but it is guarded by God's power. And this word guarded means to be kept safe. It is carefully watched. That word guard is often used in a military sense of guards at a fortress that are protecting their city. We are protected by God. He is our refuge. He is our refuge, continually guarding us. And I'm reminded of this truth in the closing words of the book of Jude, only one chapter, verses 24 and 25 say, Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy to the only God our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, authority before him now and forevermore. Amen. To him who is able to keep you from stumbling, we are guarded by the omnipotent power of God. The verse goes on to say that Christians must put their faith in the Lord, who are by God's power being guarded through faith. Reminder that salvation comes by faith. As the author of Hebrews says, but without faith, it is impossible to please him. For he who comes to God must believe that he is. And he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. That all must come by that clear pathway. As the Bible says, neither is there salvation in any other. For there's no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. It comes through personal faith. We must put our trust in him. We have to do our part and he certainly will do his part. Peter closes this verse by reminding us the time frame. It is for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. The full result of our salvation will occur in the last time. When will that occur? We don't know. But we are secure. In his loving hands, this inheritance is ours. We are secure. A couple phrases in a song that we have sung many times back home and song is called this there is a redeemer where these phrases come out in my mind when i stand in glory i will see his face and there i'll serve my king forever in that holy place brothers and sisters we can look at difficult circumstances in our lives and get discouraged trials Persecutions, and there might be persecution at the workplace or even among family members when you gather at holidays and they abhor your faith, our faith. We have every reason to, to lift our hearts in praise for the reasons that we have seen in this passage. And let's reflect on that. Let's rejoice, even though these promises may seem afar off. Those who are getting older like I am, they're getting closer every day. Thank God they are secure. So those of you who are younger, we can't put off for tomorrow living for the Lord and serving him. Let's rest in his truth. Let's honor him. Let's serve him. 
Praise the Lord for the reasons he has given us in this passage to honor him and glorify him. And even in seasons of suffering, in seasons when we are downcast, let's reflect our hearts and rejoice As Peter writes here in verse 3, according to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Thank God for his mercy. Thank God for this living hope. Thank God that we have been born again, that we are regenerated. Shall we pray?